0: So, there's nothing simple about the human phenomenon of crying. It turns out these lacrimal glands that we all have at the center part of our eye sockets actually pump out three kinds of tears. There are basal tears, which you're producing all the time, and they lubricate your eyes. There are reflex tears that you're... Lacrimal glands produce when there is some kind of irritant, excessive light or cold or heat, a foreign body in your eyes, or an irritating gas like the one released when you slice an onion. And finally, there are the tears that scientists called psychogenic Tears tears shed for emotional reasons. And do you know that scientists can actually distinguish these three kinds of tears looking at them through a microscope? For instance, onion-generated tears are more crystallized than sad tears are. Every day, all the time, your body is actually producing tears. Five to ten ounces a day, Most of those tears, though, you blink away as basal tears, or you actually reroute them down your throat. Biologists uh, tell us that all land vertebrates produce tears. Definitely basal tears, usually reflex tears. Whether or not other animals generate emotional tears is actually something of a controversy among scientists, although elephants seem to be the best candidates for emotional tears. But humans certainly do. A medical scientific study reported that women report that they cry 50 times a year on average. Interestingly, men reported that they cry only 10 times. Men's crying episodes were also briefer, two to three minutes on average versus six minutes for women. But you've got to realize that men are known statistically to underreport. The quantity and the length of their crying episodes. But in men's defense, women do produce 60% more prolactin, which is one of the proteins that triggers tears. Women also have smaller tear ducts, which means they overflow more quickly and are visible from the outside. Like I said, there is nothing simple about crying. In fact, even the meaning of tears even the cause of tears of those psychogenic emotional tears can be a bit tricky normally we associate tears with intense sadness but we all know that tears can demonstrate the exact opposite as well tears can indicate pure and intense joy like these kids on the screen behind me these kids are bawling But they're not bawling because they're sad. In each of these cases, this child has just been surprised with the gift of a new puppy. And they immediately and spontaneously burst into tears. I actually took these from a uh, compilation video that maybe you've seen going around on, on Facebook. You can find it on YouTube if you want to. So that brings me to start with a question. When was the last time that you cried tears of joy? I mean, when was the last time that you wept uncontrollably like these kids? The last time that the dam broke and the flood just flowed and there you were crying audible, gasping, sniffling tears of joy? I honestly can't remember the last time that I did. But I pose this question because I'm convinced if we want to fully understand what's happening in this story in Luke's seventh chapter that Mike just read for us, we're going to need to remember what it feels like to let loose with tears of utter and complete joy because I think that is what is happening for this woman, this unnamed woman Luke tells us about. For her, the the depth and the complexity of the emotions inside her just overwhelm her. And I think, yes, there's a little bit of sadness and regret that's mixed into those tears, as there often is with a good cry. But I think these tears are mostly coming from a place of pure and thorough joy. But notice something. Luke The master storyteller never explicitly spells out for us readers the exact circumstances of her joy, the specifics of what happened. Why is it that she is so emotional, that that she is so full of joy, that she is weeping? Luke leaves us readers to connect the dots, to kind of account for her overflowing emotion. But overflowing she is, literally and figuratively, in fact, there's a Greek verb that Luke uses here. It's the verb um, brexane, And it's translated in our translation as to the verb to wet, as in she wet Jesus' feet. This is the Greek verb to rain, as in a thundershower. The verb is used four other times in the New Testament, and every time it's used, it means that, a literal shower, a rain. What Luke wants us readers to know is that this woman rained tears down at Jesus' feet. Now, I want to take a second and explain what I think is some kind of puzzling choreography in this passage if you were listening carefully you might be a little confused because I imagine most of you there are imagining Jesus he's at dinner here at Simon's house and there he is sitting in his chair at the table and you're wondering How in the world is it possible for this woman to be standing behind Jesus at his feet? What does that mean? Standing behind Jesus at his feet? Well, the answer is that this was a banquet in first century Palestine and there were no chairs. You might have caught it in the first line when Luke tells us that Jesus was reclining at Simon's table. Doesn't say that he was sitting. So I've asked Tisha to come up here. We're going to show you a little bit about what this must have looked like. So it's the first century in the Roman Empire. People who come to parties don't sit on chairs at tables. They recline on the floor. They recline on their side on a pillow. And here's the food. You have to imagine that the table's actually kind of in a U-shaped and the food would be served from the middle of the U. And everybody is spread around this U reclining like this. The other thing is this was probably a wealthy person's home. And it would not be unusual for all sorts of people to be coming and going. Homes were somewhat open. There was an open courtyard. People would be coming in, various servants. And so it wouldn't be all that surprising for this woman to be in the background. Except this woman bravely steps forward. And it's apparent from what she is carrying that her intention is to do something that wasn't all that unexpected. In fact, it's something that later in the passage, Jesus is going to chide Simon for not doing, and that is to anoint his head, possibly his feet, with the ointment. It's called muron, and it is uh, balsam oil or olive oil that is perfumed with spices. So she's on her way to do that when suddenly she realizes that something is happening That she never planned for. She is raining tears. Down on Jesus feet. And when she notices. Jesus bare feet behind him. Are getting soaked with the tears. That are flowing from her face. And when she notices this. She does something beautiful. And spontaneous. She loosens her hair. And she kneels down. And she wipes the tears away with her hair. What this is. Is an act of pure and spontaneous and unself conscious joy and tenderness and love for Jesus. It is an act of unimaginable emotional depth and freedom and delight. The thing is, though, most of us as readers are not able to see this woman's act for what it really is. And the reason is that Luke, again, the master storyteller, presents her to us through the narrative eyes of another character there in this scene. Through eyes that are bone dry as they watch the unfolding action, the eyes of Jesus' host that evening, Simon. Now, Simon's a familiar name, but this is not Simon the disciple, the one whose name is going to be changed to Peter. This is a different Simon. This Simon is a Bible scholar. This Simon is a conscientious follower of the law. This Simon is a Pharisee. Now, for most of us used to New Testament stories, we immediately have these negative connotations of a Pharisee. But for most of the people in that room, that would not have been the case. For them, a Pharisee is someone who is devout and who's virtuous and who lives committed to God, who's respected and pious and who is meticulously righteous. And when Simon, the righteous Pharisee, looks at this woman, what he sees Is a sinner. And he's not wrong. In fact, Luke, as the narrator, has introduced her as a sinner in that first verse when we first learn of her in verse 37. But do you notice something that never throughout this? entire passage, does Luke as the narrator or Simon as a character ever reveal to us exactly what sort of sin this woman has done? We don't know how she is a sinner. And so she could be a stockbroker who's doing insider trading. She could be someone who cheated on her income tax. She could be selling stolen necklaces on the black market. We don't know What I find fascinating, and maybe a little bit suspicious, is that generation after generation of Bible readers have just assumed that her sin must be sexual. In fact, that she must be a prostitute. And that when Simon mutters something about what kind of woman this is, our minds immediately go there. Now, I'm not saying that what she does that day isn't scandalous And is not uncomfortably intimate. It is both of those things. Even for a woman in that era to loosen her hair in public was immodest. And surely then to kneel down and wipe tears away from Jesus' feet with her hair was beyond forward. Not least because whatever her sin was, if it was unrepented, then it would be ritually transmitted from her to Jesus by this intimate touch. What I want to say, though, is this assumption that this unnamed woman was a prostitute is something that we readers project onto the text. It's not something that Luke tells us. He doesn't even necessarily hint at it. And it occurred to me this week as I was thinking about this sermon, this week in which our nation is convulsed in this painful turmoil over the hurt and the shame that men and women cause one another that it at least made sense to pause a moment and to ask ourselves, what is it inside of us that drives that immediate assumption that we make about this woman? In fact, this assumption has distorted our biblical knowledge in another way. For generations, people have conflated this story in Luke with an only somewhat similar story that is in Matthew, and that story has to do with Jesus' dear friend, Mary Magdalene. And so by conflating these two stories, many, for many generations, have come to two wrong conclusions. First, that this story in Luke is about Mary Magdalene. And second, that if so, then Mary Magdalene must be a prostitute. Neither of those conclusions have any basis in the text. And I think in fact, that that distracts us from something bigger that Luke as the narrator is up to here. Something that is more personal, that is more significant, that I think is a whole lot more convicting and has the promise of transforming us. I think Luke, by showing us the scene through Simon's eyes, is luring us into seeing her the way Simon sees her, in order that he can spring on us this ironic reversal. You see, tears can mean the opposite of what you can expect, but so can a story about tears. As readers, as Luke brings us into this story, we readers are pretty confident that we know who the sinner is in this story. We know which character is the prisoner of depravity and sin. We are pretty certain we know who's the captive here to sin. But as the story progresses, all of a sudden we find ourselves unsure. Who is it who's really the sinner here? Who is it who's really the captive? And the way that Jesus does this is the way that he does it again and again by telling a parable. And it is a parable, just like most of Jesus' parables, that by the end of the telling, everything has been turned upside down, and we as readers are confronted with the unexpected reality of the kingdom of God. So here's how the parable starts. It is a deceptively simple financial transaction. Jesus tells this story, he describes these two people, two fictional people who both Owe a debt, and and Jesus compares them just in terms of dollars and cents, or more accurately, in terms of denarii. And a denarii was one day's wage for a typical first century worker. So he says, Okay, there's these two guys, and they both owe a debt to the same banker, but their debt is not at all the same. One owes 50 denarii, the other guy, 10 times that. He owes 500 denarii. All right, that's the story. And then for some reason that Jesus doesn't tell us, this banker decides to cancel both debts. And at this point, Jesus does something kind of sneaky. He, he shifts from speaking financially to speaking emotionally. And he says, which debtor, Simon, is going to love that banker more? Now, I'm not sure if at this point Simon has connected the dots that Jesus is plotting out here at that banquet that night... Either way, Simon kind of reluctantly says, well, I suppose it's the 500 denarii guy. And in an instant, everything we thought we knew is turned upside down. And we realize that it is Simon who is the real sinner in this story. It is Simon who is the captive. It's Simon who's in chains, and he's in chains to his own smugness in chains to his own superiority, his own self-assurance. And they're chains that are all the more insidious because they are invisible, especially to Simon. But Jesus does his best to show Simon what this parable means, what he's trying to tell them. And so he tells Simon, look. Look at that woman. Look through your dry eyes at this blubbering woman who's here in this room. You're muttering whether I know what sort of woman she is. The real question is whether you know what sort of woman she is. And from what I can tell Simon, you cannot see it. I love how author and Presbyterian pastor Frederick Beekner puts it in one of his books, Peculiar Treasures, although... You'll notice here that Beekner does accept that assumption that she is a prostitute. But I love what he says here, typical Beekner, He says, Jesus tells Simon the blue-nosed Pharisee that the whore's sins are forgiven her because even painted up like a cigar store Indian and smelling like the perfume counter at the five and dime, she's got more in her of what the gospel of love is all about than the whole ladies' missionary society laid end to end. Jesus tells Simon, look at her. Look at her. Can you not see love that is flowing straight from the heart? It's awkward, yeah. Socially inappropriate, okay, sure. But it is authentic, and it is genuine, and it is beautiful to behold. And in fact, Simon, if we're having a contest about hospitality, she's just kicked your butt. As Jesus turns reality upside down, we find ourselves upended too. And that's because we've been watching this scene through Simon's eyes. And we're prone to do that because that's how most of us see the world too. And so, just like is the case with Simon, Jesus confronts us with two initially uncomfortable but ultimately liberating truths. And the first is the truth about ourselves, a truth that dry, righteous eyes are not that good at seeing. If you're paying attention to this story at all, you are going to come face to face with your own smugness, smugness that all of us just grow comfortable with over time, smugness that fires off 10 times before lunch any given day. To help us to see, to jar us into awareness, I decided I want to pose a really uncomfortable question. Convinced that until we're able to honestly answer this question, we're never going to experience the 500 denarii relationship with Jesus that this woman experiences. Here's the question. To whom do you feel superior? As you go about your day, who is it, about whom you mutter to yourself, well, at least I'm better than that person. Is there a neighbor? Is there a coworker? A classmate at school? Is there that beggar on the I5 on-ramp? The checker at the grocery store? Is there that man with tattoos? Is there the woman that dresses that way? That's the bad news. The second truth is a mo- lot more positive. And it is the sheer magnitude of God's grace in Jesus Christ. The sheer scale of God's forgiveness. The mind-boggling vastness of just how big God's grace really is. And the blubbering tears of joy that that woman was weeping is because her sobbing eyes see And they understand this second truth. One thing we can say for certain about this woman is that she knows how much she has been forgiven. Forgiven of what? Well, Luke doesn't tell us. It could be anything. It could be anything. And I think that is Luke's point here. Luke is looking at us. And he's looking us in the eye. And he's saying, okay, which one do you want? Do you want the 50 denarii sample size experience of Jesus? Or do you want the 500 denarii? The one that's 10 times as big, 10 times as rich and deep and liberating. The one that causes uncontrollable tears of joy raining down unleashed. And the difference is what you choose to see when you look in the mirror. Do you see a pretty good person for whom God's given just a little bit of a boost? Or do you see a sinner astonished at the sheer scale of God's grace in Jesus Christ? You decide, Luke says, but remember, whoever's forgiven little loves little. Last Sunday, I had the privilege of teaching the first class of our new member class, our fall new member class, it was across the hall during the 11 o'clock hour. And as I always do when I have that first class, I, I tell a, a simple story of the gospel, And then we talk about growing in our faith. And I want to have a simple diagram that I present that uh, explains what does it mean to grow in faith. So I have this diagram, and it has two components. Each component is an arrow. And the first arrow hopefully goes up, and it indicates our increasing awareness of God's love for us, such that day by day and week by week, And year by year, we find ourselves saying, Wow, I thought I knew how much God loves us, but it is even more. The other component, hopefully, goes down and down, and it is our discovery of our need for God. And so that again, week by week, month by month, year by year, we find ourselves saying, I thought I needed God, but I had no idea. Do you see how counterintuitive this is? Any other field of knowledge, any other thing in human life is all about becoming self-reliant. It's about decreasing your need. The Christian life is the exact opposite. It is about discovering more and more our need for God in Jesus Christ. And on this scale, Simon the Pharisee is way, way over on the left. He's with the little tiny relationship with God, the cheap 50 denarii relationship with God. He's self assured, he's cocky, but he never experiences tears of joy. Instead, Luke introduces us to this woman. A woman whose relationship is so much deeper and so much bigger and so much richer and she's way, way over on the right. She's making a scene, sure. She's blubbering in public, sure. But she is experiencing the 500 denarii relationship with God. May God give us eyes that because we see ourselves as we really are, we know the boundless love and grace of God, who loves us more than we can imagine. And because of that, may we find ourselves weeping tears of joy.